The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. If you have your Bibles uh, this morning, uh, I'd encourage you to open up to the book of Genesis. We're walking through the story. Genesis chapter 28 is where we will be today. Uh, By the way, as you turn there, um, just want to let you know that our elders and pastors regularly gather together and pray for people. Normally, it's not up on the stage, um, so you may not know that. But but if there's anything in your life, whether that be physical challenge you're facing, if you're going to a surgery or something like that, or spiritual or mental or emotional, any way that as uh, as pastors and elders, we can pray for you, we would love to do so. Um, So if that's ever something in your life, whether now or months, years from now, please reach out to any one of us, and we would love to, to do that for you. Uh, so, so we've been journeying through this story, and much of the story has been focused on this tension between Jacob and his brother Esau. And we saw it at the very beginning of their birth when they were still in the womb, this tussling together. We saw it in Jacob's tricking his brother into getting the birthright from him. And last week, we, we looked at the story of Jacob stealing the blessing from his brother Esau. And the story ended as Jacob has now been leaving the land out to journey by himself, headed back towards where their original family had come from. And as he journeys, I'm sure Jacob's head must have been filled with so many questions. I mean, yours would and mine would. So why why would Jacob be any different? He must have been thinking, "Are are these blessings and promises really mine if now I'm all alone out here in the desert? Did I really have to go? Is this the right thing to do to leave? How long will I be gone? Will I ever come back? Will life ever be the same? And in the midst of Jacob's challenge and questions, he has this critical changing moment of his life because in the midst of it, Jacob encounters God. And we're gonna look at that encounter that Jacob has with God together this morning. It says in Genesis chapter 28, starting at verse 10, that Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. So we're told here that Jacob leaves Beersheba, which is where their family was residing, and went towards Haran. This is an immediate call back in Genesis chapter 12. When Abraham was called to go into the land, he was residing in the area of Haran. And so in a sense, Jacob is retracing in the opposite direction his grandfather Abraham's steps. This is near the beginning of his journey. We have a map here of, of, of where the journeys of Jacob started. It's at the bottom is where Beersheba is. And just about 50 miles up by the town of Jericho is where Bethel, which is where this place will be named by the end of the story, occurs. You can see he's going hundreds of miles north all the way to Haran. And so this is just a few days into his journey as, as he starts and heads out here. And as he comes to a place, it says that, that he, he laid down. Why? Because the sun was setting. And, and the text specifically highlights this was no place important. This wasn't a magical place. This wasn't a place of any anticipation. The reason Jacob stopped where he did is because it got dark. 
And as it got dark, he, he took stones or a stone and it says that he, he laid it under his head. Now, I've always been kind of fascinated by this because I don't know about you, but when I look at rocks, I don't think, wow, that looks comfortable. Um, right? So I'm like, wow, is this a new, is this a, a very firm pillow here that, that Jacob has? It could mean that he laid it under his head. Some translations or scholars would say that it laid by his head. The, the, the text could say either way. So it could be more for a protection and enclosure from the elements. But either way, we're going to see it brings up the stone here because of the role that the stone will play later on in the story as we see. So he, he has this stone and then he goes to sleep. And as he dreams, there's this miraculous thing that happens. And it's highlighted by the three beholds that we have in 12 and 13. Like, wow, look at this, wow. And then culminating, wow, God is there, right? So first is, is this behold, there is a ladder set up on the earth. Now, this is a difficult word. It's the only time ladder that this word occurs in the, the Bible. And so it's not, we can't compare it to other places. Now, as a kid, I always was just reading this. I'm like, that's a really long extension ladder, like, how long is that stinking thing? Um, the, exactly what it looked like was not meant to be the point, nor should we get stuck up on that. Some translations, instead of ladder, put stairway, that it was a stairway to heaven. If you don't know the reference to the song, go look it up later. You'll be glad you did, for those of you who don't know good rock and roll music. Um, <laughs> But in, in ancient Near East times as well, that, that structures that appeared like stairs and towers were common in religious worship, that it was often meant to be that, that in those places it was thought that God would reside with them. And we see this as, even as they've excavated in the ancient Near East. There's one, um, they're called ziggurats in some cultures. Uh, this one is from 2100 BC. It's been rebuilt, so it hasn't been preserved like this for 4,000 years. But you can see there's a large stairway going up, and this would have been a place of worship in the ancient world. And so maybe we should picture something more like this. It doesn't necessarily matter exactly what it looked like because the second behold was that the angels of God were on it. That it's clear for, for him that, that this is an intersection of heaven and earth and that they're descending and, east and ascending, meaning God is coming down and man is going up. That the heaven and earth have met at this point. And the final behold is that God is here. The Lord stood above it. It's kind of this culmination. Wow, there's these stairs. Wow, there's angels. Wow, God. God is in this place. The first thing that we, we see from Jacob's story, his encounter with God, is that it's God's grace often meets us at our lowest and loneliest. That God's grace often meets us at the lowest and loneliest moments of our lives. See, it's interesting. This is the first time that Jacob has had a personal encounter with God. God has appeared to his grandfather Abraham many times. He's appeared to his father Isaac, but God had never appeared to Jacob. It's his first encounter with God. And if, you, if you've been journeying with us in the story, Jacob's moral character to this point in the story has been questionable at best. You don't, you don't at all get the point of, wow, look how great Jacob is. Of course God's gonna come down and meet that guy, right? He is a cheater, he's a deceiver, he's a liar, and he even has blasphemed God to get his own way. To this point in the story, the only morally good thing that Jacob does is he listens to his mom, which by the way, kids, that's a very good thing to do. You could go a lot worse than listen to mom. But that's the only thing Jacob is doing, is obeying his mom. And he finds himself now at, at his lowest point in life, that he's been tricked, he's tricked the birthright, he's stolen the blessing, his father has this enormous wealth that's been promised to him, but he's, he doesn't have any of it. 
He's journeyed out and you get the sense that he has no material prosperity with him. He's at his loneliest. Jacob is highlighted as one who stays close to the tents. It's Esau who goes out and adventures and hunts wild game, but it's Jacob who stays close to home, but now he's away from home. He's kicked out of the home, alone, by himself in a foreign land. And it's there, as, as Jacob is in his lowest moment and the loneliest moment of his life, that God reaches down to him. That God's grace appears in his life when Jacob probably least expected it. See, it's not, it's often it's not till we reach the bottom of our lives that we look up for God. It's not often till we reach the bottom of our lives that we look up and see God. It's, it's, we don't realize that Jesus is all we need until everything else in our lives has been stripped away. Now, for sometimes rock bottom can appear obvious that the people who know you and know your life can sense that, yeah, your, your life has hit rock bottom. Jacob was this way. The people around him clearly would have sensed this. Sometimes it's not obvious to others. Right? There, are, there are obvious signs that are, that are circumstantial that other people see in our lives that often shows that we're, we're hitting rock bottom. Right? When, when your life is filled with a breakup or relational conflict, breakup of a marriage, of a relationship, conflict with a parent, with a child, with, with a close friend or relative that just seems to consume your life and it just feels that it's ripping you and your family apart. Oftentimes in our world, this shows up with a job loss or a career setback. And suddenly finances become very difficult and hard. And what we once looked to for meaning and satisfaction and had guarantees of success and security now are just nothing but question marks. And we don't know what the future will look like. We don't know how we're gonna provide. We don't know how we're going to live. Sometimes these comes as health crisis. It comes with a cancer diagnosis. It comes with an unexpected death of someone that we loved or held dear. Sometimes it's a combination. Some of you are like, I'm batting three for three on this. It's conflict, it's job, it's health, it's all of this put together. And often in our lives, it's when these things that we've looked to for purpose and security and satisfaction are stripped away when we finally start to look towards God. But for others of us too, I, I've, I've met and known many people who, who it hasn't been from the exterior, it hasn't been a bad life. In fact, they've achieved the things that, that people say you should achieve. They, they've met the spouse, they've gotten married, they've had the kids, they went to the right college, they got the degrees, they got the job, they got the bonuses, they got the promotions. They got the house, they got the car, they got the boat, they got the vacation home, they got the 401k, and they go, there's still nothing inside of me. It's empty. They've gotten all of it, and everyone around them from the exterior would look at them and say, wow, I want your life. And they smile because inside they're like, no, you don't. I don't want my life. Because there's nothing of meaning, of purpose, of lasting significance to all of this. And, and there's this crisis moment, even in success, where we realize that all of it doesn't fill the void in our hearts. And we just feel empty and broken of ourselves. See, when we are empty of ourselves, we are ready to receive from God. As St. Augustine put it, God gives where he finds empty hands. God gives where he finds empty hands. And it's often as, as our life strips away the things that we've held close to. And, and it, when it strips it away, it's where God starts to show up. See, the good news of God is this, that the grace of God meets you in the mess of your life. The grace of God meets you in the mess of your life, not after the cleanup, 
Not after you've gotten it together, not after you've changed your behavior, not after you've corrected your wrongs, not after you've mended their relationships, not after you've kicked the addiction. God meets you right in the mess of your life, at the lowest, at the loneliest. See, grace is never about earning, and often it takes failing to actually realize that. That what God has called us to is never about what you've done, but often it takes being a total failure to realize that. And if you're here this morning and you feel like a total failure, like nothing has going right in your life, you are in the perfect spot to meet God. It's where Jacob was. Nothing's going right. He's been kicked out from home. He's on the run. His brother wants to murder him. And it's there that God shows up. See, God doesn't wait until you have yourself together to show up in your life. He enters into your mess, to the lowest and loneliest places that you have been. It's right then and there so often where God's grace comes down and meets you. So if you're here at your lowest and loneliest, you're right where God would have you because that's where God's grace can intersect and change your life just as it did Jacob's life. So God is in this place. And God speaks in verse 13, says this. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. God speaks and, and gives the covenant promise to Jacob. This sounds familiar if you just were here two weeks ago when God made a very similar covenant promise to Isaac. He did this multiple times to Jacob's grandfather, to, to Abraham. And there's three key elements of these covenant promises that God makes to them. First is for land, right? That the land in which you live will be yours. And God promises him this. He promises that, that he will come back to the land, which would have been reassuring for Jacob as he's about to leave and journey outside. That God promises this is for him. That there would be offspring. That he would have kids on kids on kids, which is good news for him because if you remember, the reason of his journey is to go and to find a wife. And this is God guaranteeing, this is God promising him that you are headed in the right direction. What's unique actually here. And this, uh, the covenant promise to, to Jacob is that his offspring will spread. The, this, the, the idea of spreading actually is echoes of the Tower of Babel, which by the way, in Genesis is the only other time we've seen a tower or a stairway structure mentioned in, in scripture. In Babel was man trying to get to God. Here it's God coming down towards man and saying, Jacob, just like in Babel, they spread. So your offspring in a good way will spread throughout the world. And finally, the third part of the covenant promise was for blessing. Right, that in you, verse 14, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It's ultimately a, a point forward to the Messiah, to Jesus himself being the blessing to the worldwide people, ultimately through the lineage and the family of Jacob. His response to this encounter with God is, is fear. 
It's all mixed with terror, as in every true encounter with God. It's not just, wow, that was cool, but oh my goodness, that was utterly terrifying, but I wanna do that again. I wanna see that again. I wanna experience him again that way. He says, this place is awesome. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. But notice after God makes the promises to Abraham, what he gives him as well. In verse 15, he says, behold, I am with you and I will keep you. See, the second thing we see in this passage is the promises of God are secured by the presence of God. The promises of God are secured by the presence of God. God just doesn't say, hey, Jacob, I promise you this. He says, I promise you and I'll be with you. I will be with you. That's how you can trust in the promises of God. These echo what was just twice told to his father Isaac in chapter 26. In chapter 26, verse 3, Isaac was told, then I will be with you and will bless you. And then again in verse 24, it says, I am the God of your father Abraham. Fear not, for I am with you and I will bless you. Now Jacob also receives this promise of the presence of God. It's a consistent reminder throughout the Old Testament. We see this not just in the patriarchs, but for Israel is constantly God reminding them of his presence with us. We see this in the New Testament, that God promises his presence with you and with me. The Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew says to go make disciples of the whole world. And then what does it end with? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's the promised Holy Spirit that he will send to us. And in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen, and they're secured, they're realized in our lives by the presence of God with us. See, God promises if you're a follower of Jesus and you've placed your faith in him, God's promises towards you, just to name a few, are that you would experience peace and comfort and rest and strength and hope and power. But is it just me? That's not how you feel every day. It's not how I feel every day. If you're like, okay, good, if the pastor can say that, then I can admit it too. Right? I don't wake up every day feeling God's strength and hope and power. Sometimes I feel the opposite of that. Why don't we feel like we're experiencing these promises of God in our lives every day? I think it's because of this. We, we truly experience this, these promises of God in a greater way when we are daily aware of the presence of God in our lives. When we're actually aware and acknowledging and living with the presence of God in our lives. See, for many of us, we don't experience this kind of power of God, the peace of God, because Christianity is more, I'm just gonna believe a few things and get by with what God calls me to do. I'm gonna believe in things, I'll show up to church on Sunday, I'll do a few things to, to feel good, and then that's all I want. Whereas here's the thing, God doesn't just want you to check some things off a box, God wants a daily relationship with you. God just doesn't want you to believe something or show up on a weekend. God wants a daily relationship with you. He wants us to live life in his presence. One of, uh, one of the authors who's done so much on this in a book, he writes this, the most holy and important practice in the spiritual life is the presence of God. That is every moment to take great pleasure that God is with you. See, this is the, the purpose of why we encourage followers of Jesus to pursue spiritual disciplines or spiritual habits in our lives. But we so often reduce spiritual habits as just checking the thing off the list so we can go on with the rest of our day. 
right? And th- this is just how our personalities, how our world is wired, right? I'm doing a read through the Bible, uh, pr- uh, read through the Bible program this year, and it's in the Bible app. And so every day you got to read like two to four chapters, and there's these little boxes to check it. The purpose of trying to read through the Bible is not so I can look back in December and be like, I checked all 365 boxes. Look how great I did. No, the purpose of reading the Bible is so I would pause for five, 10, 15 minutes of my day and actually stop what I'm thinking about and spend time with God. It's not just reading it so I can check the box, but it's, it's being with God. The purpose of prayer isn't so you can just tell God what you need and ask God for something. You can, God loves you, he'll listen to you. But the purpose of prayer, first and foremost, is simply being with God, that you would enjoy, that you would be in his presence and invite him in to your everyday life. See, this is how Jesus described it in the Gospel of John. Jesus says this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. And unless you abide in me, unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And we, we so often try and reduce the Christian life to the bare minimum of what we can get by doing and still be good with God. That's a total opposite of what a relationship looks like. How would you feel like if your marriage partner said, hey, what's the bare minimum that I can get done to keep this relationship going? You'd be like, excuse me? Stop asking that question. That's the first thing, right? But when it comes to God, we're like, all right, what's the bare minimum that I can do and still be good with God? Like how many, how many Sundays a year do I need to go to church? How much do I need to give? How much should I serve? And those things are all good. Like we, we should do those things. But we have an attitude of, of how much can I do just to be, to be good with him? Where it's, that's not a relationship. That's not how any healthy relationship would work. See, perhaps we're not experiencing the promises of God. It's because we're not daily living in the presence of God. And the amazing thing is the key is not just try harder. It goes against our performance mentality. But I wanna encourage you, what does it look like in your life to spend unhurried, agenda-free time with God? Let me ask you this. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you spent unhurried? So it's not like I gotta leave in five minutes. Let me open my Bible. Agenda-free, not like, God, this is my need. This is what I need from you. This is what my urgent thing. When's the last time you spent time with God like that? Because here's the thing, if, if in our human relationships, the only time we spend with someone is hurried and has an agenda, the relationship isn't healthy and won't continue to grow, right? I had one of those weeks this week where I look back and I'm like, I, I, I did way too much, right? And it became by like Friday, Saturday, it felt like my relationship with my wife and I was just like, all right, taskless, what do we need to do to keep our kids alive and fed and everybody sane, Right? And you know that, man, if you go too many days and weeks like that, suddenly you look at your, your, your spouse and you're like, Some, something's not right here. Because what do you need for a healthy relationship? You need unhurried, agenda-free time just together. We're not accomplishing. We're not sitting down on the budget. We're not planning the schedule. We're, we're together. That's what a healthy relationship looks like. But so few of us have any unhurried, agenda-free time with God. That's why we encourage you this week to sign up, to spend an hour with God. It's far more time than most of us ever take a whole week combined. And we're challenging you to do it in one day. And the purpose isn't so you can check it off the list, be like, wow, look how great that is. But no, it's, it's slow down and be in God's presence. 
Because as we live and invite the presence of God into our lives, we'll be aware of his promises and we'll experience those promises of peace and of hope and of strength and of power that come when we live and invite God into everyday things of our lives. And so we have to live in the presence of God to experience these promises. Verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord should be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of, of all that you give me, I will give a full 10th to you. We see now why the stone was mentioned early on in the story, because the stone that was put by his head as a pillow or, or a safety becomes now an altar, a memorial, a remembrance stone to God, spe specifying the site as this is where I encountered the living God. He takes oil on it and consecrates it. Later on in the Old Testament, oil is what sanctified, set some, some, something apart, excuse me, as holy. He renames the town, which there's a town close by named Luz. He names it Bethel, which literally just means the house of God. It means the house of God. It would become an important place throughout many years of Israel's history, that God was in this place. And then in verse 20, an interesting thing, he makes, he makes a vow. A promise. This is the only patriarch that we see doing this, and this is the longest vow we have in Scripture. And, and when he starts it by saying, if God be with me, if God will do his end, it, it's a little tricky because of how English works for us, but it can almost look like Jacob saying, well, if God does that, I'll take a wait-and-see approach. And if he actually does what he says he does, then I'll follow him. But it's more like you could say, he's saying if as like, hey, as long as God continues to be faithful, since God has promised this, I'm starting from right now. I'm starting from now. And if God ever shows himself not faithful, then I'll stop. But I'm in. I'm in. And if God continues to do what he's promised to do, I will stay in. I will keep having you as my God. I will keep following after you. This is a statement of full surrender, of full devotion by Jacob, including, as you notice, even his financial and material resources, surrendering back to God. See, the third thing we see from Jacob's life is this, is you never go wrong when you bet on God. You never go wrong when you bet your life on God. See, this is a proper response to a true God encounter, full surrender, full devotion to him. Surrender of everything that we have to God. And here's the thing. God doesn't just want to be a part of our lives. God doesn't want to just be a part of our lives. Like, hey, if you could fit me in, I know you're busy, you got a lot going on, but just squeeze, squeeze me in a little bit. God doesn't just want to be included. God wants all of our lives. He wants full surrender, full devotion of all that we have to him. And Jacob has experienced God. He's experienced both the fear and awe of God, and he draws near to him. It's as if he's saying experiencing God was terrifying, but living apart from God would be even more terrifying. And I want in. I'm, I'm following after you. And it's his full commitment to follow after God. See, we, we don't go wrong. You won't regret if you give your full commitment, your full devotion, your full surrender to God. 
Many years ago, it was, uh, I forget when, it was in 2016 or 2017, there was a European family that, that made the news. And that, we have a picture of this family. Um, it was led by, by a dad who's an entrepreneur, and they made news because seven or eight years ago, they sold everything they owned. And by everything, literally, he's like, we sold everything. We sold our house, we sold our, our cars, we sold our clothes, we sold our toys, we sold everything we had, bought a camper van, and they invested everything they had in Bitcoin. And this was before cryptocurrency was a huge thing, right? And he took this huge risk on it. Now, I found a follow-up interview with him this last year, and they asked him how much his net worth was. He declined to answer, meaning he's worth a lot of money now, right? That's only something a rich person says. If you ask me, be like, the bank owns more than I do. Don't come after me. Like, you're good. You'll just get on debt. Like, that's fine. You know, but, but here's the thing. When he did this, he, he made news because this was so extremely risky, Right? There was no guarantees that he would make anything. In fact, most of the people probably thought, you're going to lose everything. Right? If, if people were like, hey, we guarantee a 50x return on your money in eight years, probably a lot of us have been like, guaranteed? All right, I'm in. Let's do that. Right? If it's a guaranteed outcome of success, we, of course, would, would say yes. Now, here's the thing. In following God, you're guaranteed of the outcome. It's not a risky venture to say, well, maybe God will prove faithful. Maybe God will actually come up on his promises. Maybe the end of the Bible is actually how the story will end someday. No, in following God, your outcome is sure. It says in Romans 8 that when you follow Jesus, you are more than conquerors through him who loves you. And you never go wrong in your life when you risk it all, when you devote it all, when you surrender every single thing you have to the will of God. When you surrender your career, you surrender your future, you surrender your finances, give your marriage, give your kids, give everything you have to God, you won't end up someday looking back in your life and saying, I wish I would have done it my way. But I guarantee for a lot of us, we can look back at periods of our lives and say, I, I wish I would have done it sooner. Don't be someone who on your deathbed looks back and says, I wish I would have done it different. I wish I would have given that to God. Because it, it doesn't mean anything now. But it's a full devotion, and we will never regret this when we go in, when we bet our lives on God. I love this story of Jacob's life because there was nothing special about the place. There was nothing special about the day. But it changed Jacob's life forever, right? It's the turning point in his entire life that, that in the lowest moment, he met God, as one scholar put it, this is the story of how a place became a shrine, a stone became an altar, and a fugitive became a pilgrim because God in his grace revealed himself to Jacob. See, Jacob didn't go out wanting to meet God. He didn't have a desire to meet God. But in the lowest moment of his life, God showed up and his grace appeared and Jacob's life was forever changed because of it. See, an ordinary day, in an ordinary place becomes extraordinary when God shows up. An ordinary place in an ordinary day becomes extraordinary when God shows up. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've had an experience like this. An ordinary day in an ordinary place. For me, it was April 1st, 1992. The place was a small Baptist church in Hemet, California, middle of nowhere, out in the desert. That I was a kid back at the time and I'd grown up in a Christian family, and I realized, hey, it's not just that my parents believe in this Jesus thing. It's not just that my older brother does. It's something I need to do as well. 
And I'll never forget that Wednesday night, praying with one of my leaders and placing my faith in Jesus. My life was forever changed. It was an ordinary day in an ordinary place, but it became extraordinary for me because it's where I first met and encountered the grace of God. There's nothing special about this day. There's nothing special about this place. But today could be an extraordinary day for you if for the first time you meet God's grace today. That maybe you're at your low point. You're at your loneliest point. You've realized my life as it is is not working. I need something else. And Jesus, in your pain and the lowest of your circumstances, cries out and says, come to me. He has done all that you need for salvation. It's never been about what you could do to offer God. It's always been what Jesus has done for you on the cross. He died for your sin, for my mistakes, so that we could have forgiveness, have fullness of life, have meaning, have hope, have purpose. Today, an ordinary day can be an extraordinary day for you if you meet God's grace for the very first time. God, we thank you that you and your grace come down and you meet broken, fallen, hurting, messed up people like me. God, and our lives have been forever changed because of it. God, if there's anyone here this morning right now who says, I'm at my low point, I'm at my loneliest point, and today I want to encounter that kind of grace from God, I need to experience a change in my life. If that's true of you this morning, would you simply pray this prayer with me? God, I want to receive your grace today. I believe in what Jesus has done for me. And I receive the gift of salvation from him. God, we thank you that you're a God who finds us in the mess of our lives and offers us grace. God, we have been forever changed by you. Help us to more and more live in the presence of God each and every day to experience the life that you would have for us that all started because you're a God who demonstrated and showed us your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.